0: The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners to learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube.
1: All right, I'm Noah Tolle, one of the participants in the liberating arts. And I'm here with three of our other participants, Jeff Bilbro, Jessica Wilson, and David Hendrickson. And we're here to talk about some of the things we've learned already in the midst of our project this fall uh, from the conversations that we've been having. So we've published 10, no more than 10, we've published uh, 16 or 17, I think, videos so far. What themes do you see emerging from these conversations? What are some important points, some important tensions that may need further exploration?
2: Uh, maybe I'll, I'll uh, chime in here. I think. I've been impressed by the range of concerns and topics. I mean, we've had conversations about um, publications you know, with, with John Baskin from um, The Point or provosts, obviously they're gonna have different set of concerns or um, you know, people talking about dying and, and how the liberal arts train us to die well. So there's been, I think a nice breadth, but one of the themes that has struck me and this could be me personally because my job's been been cut, so I, I'm experiencing this personally. But I I, I am, am surprised to see this sort of threat of crisis running across all the people we're talking to. Everyone seems to feel like this is a kind of uh, apocalyptic moment, kind of like we 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 sensed this spring when we started these conversations. Um, and I, you know, I just saw in the Chronicle, I think last week, that 10% of jobs in in high red have been cut since February. So there's been a lot of uh, employment affected. And I guess uh, what encourages me is that these sort of economic and cultural shifts that are taking place pretty fast right now, and, and in a kind of disorienting manner. Um, what encourages me is that they might force us to do things better, to change in, uh, you know, to kind of reevaluate the status quo and think, well, we've been doing this okay for 10 years but maybe that's actually not how it should be done. So um, I guess I'm, I'm encouraged by the, the, the way that people seem to be seeing this moment as a chance or an opportunity to, to kind of rethink what we're doing and, and how we're doing it. And maybe in uncomfortable ways but uh, I guess that gives me some hope.
0: It struck me though that um, like in a good ap- apocalypse, it's not like something totally new is happening. It's like, a, it's like a revelation of what bad stuff was already going on in a sort of extreme way. Um, and so all the questions that I think uh, are, are coming to the surface in the middle of this crisis and all the conversations we've been having on the site point back to problems that are rooted in, in several decades of, of probably malpractice within the academy. And uh, maybe the silver lining then in something like the pandemic and, and the social protest movements we've seen over the past you know, six to nine months is that we can't avoid the questions anymore. Uh, and that the crisis is hitting so close to home and is actually at an existential level in the sense that institutions are actually shuttering, departments are closing up, like the, things are, are, have advanced to such an advanced degree uh, that we have to address questions regarding the very nature and purpose of liberal arts. Um, my my hope, and I, I see glimmers of this hope in in many of the conversations that have happened uh, just in these first few months, is that um, folks I think are, are open to a reimagining of the tradition and opening it up to new discussions and new conversation partners and maybe even new uh, media for you know the, the process of formation that we've been talking about. But there is a sort of commitment to kind of the core values, I think, of liberal arts education and the pursuit of truth, beauty, and goodness. The question is just, how do we lose sight of those in the first place? And what does the current crisis reveal about why we lost sight?
3: I've recognized a tension, I think, between some of these conversations and how inspiring and exciting they've been. And at the same time, the so-called practical or useful side of things that we've been investigating. Because it seems like when our participants come on in conversation, they love the liberal arts. I mean, I don't think there's any denial of the value of liberal arts. I haven't heard a single conversation where someone was like, you know, they're just not. I mean, there's some that have been doubting their primacy, but there's no one that's been doubting that they're a good. And so I've been uplifted by the fact that people recognize the liberal arts help us live well. They help us die well. They help us think better. They help us love what is beautiful and good and true. And there's been a lot of those kind of conversations, um, but just the practical aspects that people seem very limited and not just institutionally, but in trying to fit within a certain box for how those things can be practiced. Even uh, the great conversation you had Noah with uh, Nathan Grodd, he was talking about how to, once you have students on your campus, really invite them into the liberal arts conversation, but we're still in this recruiting game. Like we still have to play the game. We just have to change the rules. We just have to change the means. Um, But what about changing the whole game, (laughs) right? How many ways can we get outside the box where uh, that tension between the beautiful of it and the uselessness of it doesn't exist anymore? Um, That we recognize that we can practice these things that are beautifully useless.
1: I wanna pick up on that thread and the crisis thread that David also just introduced us to. Several people that we've talked with, um, I'm thinking of Zena Hintz, I'm thinking of Alan Jacobs, um, though this has come up in a couple different conversations, have emphasized that we should embrace the uselessness of the liberal arts. And that there's a real, there's a real advantage in that to the liberal arts. There's a real truth in it. It's not it's not merely advantage, but it also reflects some truth. Uh, and on the other side, a lot of the alternatives to liberal arts are also not as useful as we make them out to be. That is, if we're just going to do vocational training, for example, for the jobs of quote unquote tomorrow, four years from now, first of all, we may not know what those are, but secondly, who's to know whether those are the jobs of 14 years from now or 40 years from now. And so in a sense, uh, we've been urged to embrace liberal arts uselessness and to consider that other things might be useless in that way too. I wonder what you think of that argument. Um, and, And is it, is embracing liberal arts as perhaps even irrelevant? In fact, one of the strategies that we need to move forward in the conversation or is it a losing proposition to just name all these things as irrelevant and useless and then try to figure out which useless thing we really want to do? How, how do you respond to that?
3: I'm excited by that question if you want me to jump in. That's a great question because uh, I think we're using the word useless in different ways. One is um, almost a synonym for enjoyment, right? We enjoy these things, these things, and not in just a pleasure seeking way, but in a way that has a higher good to it, it has more substance to it. And that's what the liberal arts are doing. They're teaching you how to live because they're teaching you, uh, they're training you for what is good and worth investing your time and energy in. And those things, like you said, can actually lead to better jobs that are 40 years out and 50 years out that we can't even see what those are because they're training you towards universal goods that are timeless. The other way of talking about it is the utilitarian sense of uselessness, but it doesn't have anything to do with enjoyment. It has to do with efficiency and with effectiveness and with all those kind of abstract terms that turn us into tools as human beings. Uh, So I I think it's good to kind of separate the two ideas of uselessness. One is the enjoyment, and one is um, the lack of efficiency or effectiveness or success in that job market, um, the way that we've come to just expect that those are the kind of skills that will get you the jobs. I think that's a really good distinction to make.
0: Really insightful. Uh, we do have to kind of play with two different definitions of usefulness, like she said. Uh, and I think on, on one hand, you know, we, we can talk about the liberal arts um, bringing ultimate meaning to life in the pursuit of ultimate goods, ultimate truths. And these things have value regardless of their, their monetary value. And that, and I think that's an important point to press, especially once you have students in the classroom and are, are there for four years committed to hopefully some sort of process of self discovery and pursuit of wisdom. But as Noah, as Noah, you said, like there's also the recruitment angle and we do also have to think about how we're going to be talking about these things before we have somebody buy into the commitments of being in this campus community and pursuing these goods. And um, The difficulty for selling the liberal arts just bluntly is that it's hard to make it in a single infographic and it's hard to make a sort of bite-sized argument for the value of something that we also talk about as being useless and intrinsically valuable. Um, That said, the one infographic that I I have seen, I've used in the past, I I think is at least a conversation starter is an infographic that shows uh, a sort of five-year trajectory of students graduating with certain majors and what industry or field they end up in at the end of a five to seven year period. And there are a few uh, cases specifically like say engineers or, or nurses who do tend to maintain a pretty stable uh, career trajectory that emerges out of their major. But in the vast majority of cases in the vast majority of majors, you see this sort of windy path that goes all over the place. So the, the, the field or the discipline or the job that they thought they were going to have uh, as a senior in college ends up just a few years down the road to be something entirely different for any number of life circumstances and contingencies that you cannot anticipate. And I think this is where we need to plant the flag for the making a case for liberal arts, because it is supposed to, it doesn't always, but the point of the liberal arts is to form you to be a certain sort of person, a good person, a prudent person, a courageous person, such that you have uh, I, I kind of want to shy away from skills language, but you have, let's say the dispositions or virtues or habits that equip you to successfully and wisely pursue any number of vocations. And I think that's, it's, it's, a, it's a more delicate argument. it's a complicated one that again, usually can't be distilled into a single infographic. But I think it's the sort of case that we're going to have to make.
2: That's a good point, David. I like, I like the nuanced way that you put that. Noah, I think you talked to Christian Hoakley about this, and I think he's he pointed to Anthony Fauci, if I remember right, as a classics grad who's obviously getting a lot of press right now um, for his ability to translate between science and the public, right? So, that, hey, this this is an example, right, of someone at the end of a career trajectory that's uh, maybe unpredictable. One of the things, though, I was I was struck by uh, John Baskin mentioned to Brad that, uh, and I don't know the the origin of this, but he said that. Um, AT&T had these employees who were um, kind of had risen up to the ranks, most of them didn't have college undergrad degrees, and they wanted to uh, provide them a kind of liberal arts, almost apparently a great books kind of education, thinking that would make them more productive, creative, innovative employees. And what they instead discovered was that Reading these books—I mean, I think he said they read *Ulysses*. I don't know why they thought reading Joyce was the solution, but uh, reading these books actually made them worse employees because they spent more time with their families, um, and and they were like, "Well, actually, I don't care as much about making a lot of money, right?" So, I would I would want to say that in some ways, you know, a liberal arts education does make you a better employee. Does have these particular goods uh, that are uh, extrinsic or instrumental kinds of goods but it might also make you a worse employee. You know, it might train you how to die well. It might train you how to be a good neighbor. Uh, it might train you how to be a good, a good parent or spouse. You know, I think Davey, you talked about uh, habits and dispositions and virtues, right? Which certainly translate uh, to various kinds of employment, but not not easily or directly necessarily, right? You might you might push back if your company is doing things that you think are dodgy in, in certain ways. So. To me, that's the argument that I want to make that that the liberal arts make could, can not necessarily, but they can make you a better person. Um, they they can make you uh, a, someone who loves and thinks better, which which might then also make you a good employee if we define good in certain ways. But I do really think that we have to push back against the a simple, a simplistic, liberal arts make you a good employee because there are probably better ways to train nimble, creative, collaborative, whatever, you know, whatever the, the keywords are you want to insert for the work workforce of tomorrow. So I think, yeah, somehow we, ha- and, and to me, the conversations have been um, helpful in um, thinking about how to make that kind of nuanced argument that uh, that you guys are talking about.
1: Yeah, those are three really good answers. I, I think what comes to mind for me now are follow-up questions like, what's your favorite infographic about liberal arts? Or if you had to make one, what would that look like? Um, Not because I think it's necessarily going to serve us well in the long run to spend a lot of time with infographics, but because it may tell us something uh, depending on which one we choose or how we put it together. I also am glad for the fleshing out that everybody gave to Jessica's very good start to that answer because my immediate response to Jessica's answer was, well, how do we say this to people? Uh, it was, do we get a chance ever to actually communicate to prospective students, prospective parents, that there are, there are multiple kinds of ends, there are multiple kinds of uses, that, that it's not just a race to the bottom of the uselessness category to say that the liberal arts are sort of useless in a certain way, we're referring to a different kind, of uselessness. I want to move on to another question, though, um, that has to do with uh, a healthy stance to our, toward our received tradition of the liberal arts. We've had uh, several conversations with people who have been engaged in some sort of reclamation project or some sort of critique of liberal arts or things that are close to the liberal arts tradition or of education itself the academy as we know it. So for example, uh, Jennifer Hurt models one kind of redemptive reclamation work with her discussion on the German Bildung tradition or Alan Jacobs defense of reading old books is a defense of reading old books in spite of our sometime you know, queasiness about them. And, and our reservations about them, that some of which are actually grounded in good observations about what we ought to value and what wasn't valued by the authors or in those times. And Willie Jennings uh, has more than one fairly wholesale critique of the academy that we ought to think about when it comes to race, among other things, uh, place as well, space. So what parts how do we how do we deal with this what parts of the broad and contested liberal arts tradition seem worth holding on to leaning into retrieving and what parts may we need to let go or how do we relate critically to something we want to embrace
0: but yeah so specifically i think in in the liberative channel we've had a, a lot of intentional conversations about this And it struck me, a couple of things struck me. One was that um, I think despite our best efforts, sometimes we still tend to think of the liberal arts as a a discrete set of content or subject matters as opposed to a means for formation. And it struck me, this is important when we talk about um, the ways in which the the received tradition needs to be opened up or challenged and contested in certain ways and specifically say the canon that we have always just assumed to be the canon. So this would be, of course, one of the main critiques offered by Willie Jennings among others is that uh, the canon isn't very diverse in some corners of at least sort of Anglo-American liberal arts tradition, right? And so what would it mean to, if we want to to reclaim, restore, uh, uh, or reconfigure the liberal arts tradition as a as a means for formation, while changing what it is that is forming us in terms of what ideas and authors we're engaging with. Um, and this struck me actually just this term was um, I've been teaching in the Honors College at, at Valparaiso and which is as a really storied history of really excellent professors and students coming through and reading great books together and arguing about all sorts of amazing topics. If you take a close look at the syllabus, though, it's not what you would say is like the usual suspects for liberal arts, because you know, we're reading everybody from Confucius to James Baldwin to Virginia Woolf, figures who... I suspect, you know, uh, wouldn't have fit even for anachronistic reasons into a say an Oxbridge syllabus of the 1930s, right? Just the sorts of questions that these authors are raising are not utterly novel, but are certainly different and bringing a set of challenges and contestations to the tradition that uh, I think are really, really good. Um, I think uh, Angela actually has brought up some of these points and uh, some of her uh, engagements on the, in the project and some of her uh, writings as well. like who are we reading? And if we're asking students uh, who are, are not white to engage in this tradition and, and to be part of its transformation, are we making sure that the people, the authors they're reading look like them as well as like us? So these are very challenging questions and I don't have any answers, but I found some of the, the stuff that's been going on uh, in conversations in the Liberative channel, especially very, very interesting and challenging.
2: Yeah, I would just concur that uh, I really enjoyed that conversation that Angel had about thinking about the great books tradition more as like great questions and then thinking about which voices need to speak into that. So if you're going to read Locke on Property, maybe you should read Equiano too, right? I mean, that was a great conversation, I thought. Um, and, and to me, uh, one of the benefits is that she said, you know, I think that the, the implication is that you kind of have to engage with a big tradition still. You can't just approach things from our presentist bias, you know, and just kind of the narrow slice of the contemporary, that we recognize that the questions that we're wrestling with about pandemics, about social unrest, about politics, are actually very old human questions. You know, I mean, I think uh, uh, several of us, I know, pushed our students to reread or read, maybe for the first time for them, uh, Lewis is learning in wartime this spring, where he's, he opens up, you know, on the eve of, of um, World War II, uh, hitting England. And he says, you know, this is actually no absolutely new situation. We're always learning uh, on the brink of war. We're always learning in this moment of crisis, and so I think it's really important that uh, one of the things a liberal arts education does is form students to recognize that the questions uh, that they face are these old human questions, and that they need to they need that broader perspective to answer them well for their own time. So um, maybe we need to, to, to expose them to different voices or to sort of get at these questions in, in different ways And they've always been gotten at. But the, the fundamental question, you know, how do you die? That's a pretty fundamental human question. And that question uh, is old and new and we need to think about it um, in, in with the best, most thoughtful voices we can. So I think thinking about uh, sort of the human the task of humanistic education broadly, uh, recognizing our shared humanity across time and culture, but maybe uh, changing or being open to revising some of the voices. That's one thing that has struck me from the conversation so far about this.
3: Yeah, your question about how to really get this message out there, not even really message, but how do we engage people who don't seem to have any space In their mind for the kinds of questions they're asking. Um, Either they've discarded it as unimportant or it's not going to fit to their current goals to get a job and to make money and so forth. And so they don't really have the space or they don't want to have the space to think of these things. And you know on um, Davy's podcast for Valpo, the call and character, we just talked about this a little bit because I really do think it's more about the parents problem than it is a student problem. Uh, At the same time, why is it a parent's problem? Well, because they had teachers that didn't teach these things well. (laughs) And so, and I think that my colleagues are very similar where when I have my engineering colleagues arguing that we shouldn't have a literature class required at the school I used to work at, um, it's because the way they were taught literature was to read from an anthology and answer a quiz. So I think the problem is threefold. I think it's an administrative problem with just recruiting and a certain paradigm of recruiting and kind of just getting the bodies in the chairs um, that is a little bit problematic. It's treating people like consumable goods. It's not thinking about the current culture of the university or institution that you're in. Um, It's not thinking about anything but the profit and keeping the school alive. And that survivalist mentality is just gonna be really problematic for flourishing, right? So it's an administrative problem. It's a teacher problem. Teachers have got to realize It is not a bad thing to connect what you're teaching to students' lives, and uh, they're so protective against, they don't want this me impulse in their students, and they don't want to just entertain their students, that they don't recognize that engagement is part of a teaching process. It doesn't have to be entertainment as though it goes nowhere else. It has to be engagement. It has to be relational. They have to see that this applies to who they are and where they live, and that's not a bad thing. That's a relevancy is not a negative (laughs) it just can't be an end in and of itself and that's the problem so teachers need to see in a in a bigger way um, of understanding what it is that they're teaching and i think the last one is medium i hope that that's what the liberating arts is doing but what i've noticed from these conversations is you know lydia dugdale was searching for all of these answers on her own she just realized the problem that people didn't know how to face the question of death And she wasn't a theologian. And so she went out and looked for the resources herself, right? Um, Zena hits doing the Catherine project. She's doing it on her own to invite people into these conversations who aren't going to be at St. John's. How else can they get these questions of liberal arts? And so I think what we're finding is that there has to be even outside of the academy, more ways to engage with the liberal arts than we've currently thought about. Podcasting videos, Zoom sessions, Um, there's lots of different mediums that we probably need to be in that sphere and out teaching the nonsense that's out there and available because we're offering something that's just more substantive.
1: So I wanna follow up on that, that outside the academy point. One of my favorite questions early on in this conversation to ask a couple of the folks that we interviewed is where else can we make a home for liberal arts learning? We think right now in the United States that liberal arts happens at residential liberal arts colleges. And there's good reason for that. And that's a very unique way in which we've cultivated the liberal arts for a couple hundred years now. But the liberal arts tradition is far older than that. In fact, it predates the university tradition. And so we have to acknowledge that historically, there've been other homes for it. Culturally, there are other ways in which this is inflected. There've been other homes for it. Um, What are some other homes that we see? Another way to ask this question um, that we've asked, as it has to do with say theological versus academic, but another way to ask this question is, do you need a liberal arts college education to be liberated? or do we find that in other areas and should we find it in other institutions?
2: Yeah, I, I, one of the ones that interests me the most that that's uh, been most exciting for me is to, is to think about how uh, sort of print magazines or online communities, if I can use that word, um, conforming, you mentioned, you know, Hitch's project. There's these um, really interesting sort of grassroots, um, organizations where people get together, talk about texts or, you know, a publication, you know, runs, you know, a comment will do an issue with around a question or theme and invite really thoughtful essays that draw on, you know, a variety of sources to to address a pressing question of the day. So I think those are um, exciting possibilities and have a lot of merit. Um, But to me, the other flip side of this is how do you make these conversations how do you give people the leisure required to do this right so the university has has a whole economy around it that gives professors the leisure to um, spend long time with these questions and texts gives students you know four years of leisure in a particular sense and it's expensive right leisure is expensive so i think it, it, we the, the reason that the crisis of liberal arts colleges is so uh, disturbing or, or scary in some ways is that a lot of these other institutions, including magazines, right? Um, who, many of whose writers uh, teach at universities, many of whose readers um, graduated from college and particularly liberal arts kind of colleges. Uh, many of these other institutions also depend on college or, or university institutions. So to me that's the challenge. Like how do you how do you find ways to make this venture economically possible uh, for a, for a wide range of people so that it's not just the purview of the wealthy, but that there there is some kind of access. And so yeah, that to me is is the outstanding challenge that I want to keep thinking about.
0: Yeah, I, I I think I agree with you, Jeff. I, I'm very interested in in finding a way to explore sort of the, the grassroots liberal arts movement and the way that, you know, there's sort of grassroots democratic organization. What could, we, how could we democratize? How could we create little sleeper cells of liberated, you know, critical thinkers uh, in various pockets of civil society? And I mean, the, the options are in some senses limitless. Like you can create these pockets for, for learning and the pursuit of wisdom in, in any context. Um, I, some of the, the most important, I think, um, transformational experiences I've had both as a student and as an instructor happen outside the classroom. Um, whether it's through, uh, I, let me give one example. So, uh, when I was teaching uh, theology back at, at dork College, we had a, a group of students who just knew that a couple of us, a couple of us faculty, loved the novels of Marilyn Robinson. And so we had the idea of creating a completely voluntary, not for credit book club where we read through all four novels. And then Noah will appreciate this. It culminated in a road trip to Wheaton College where Robinson was speaking uh, at the, the big theology conference there in the spring. And the conversations that happened in the book clubs that happened in the, the minivan on the drive from Iowa to Wheaton were just some of the best, con- they, they ranged all over. It was not just limited to you know, a discussion of uh, American literature centering on a rural town in Iowa in the mid 20th century. It was like about everything in life. And because we were outside the classroom, there was a sort of, I think, a freedom to apply all these great ideas and questions to just about anything. And if we could find ways to replicate those sorts of conversations in, whether it's in book clubs, in Sunday schools, uh, you know, wherever we can find a space in civil society to pursue these ultimate questions, it's not that people with, it's not as if people with a PhD in the humanities have, uh, you know, the sole domain to talk about these things. These conversations can and should happen in all sorts of spaces.
3: I'm gonna agree with you and push back and it's not about Marilyn Robinson, but I'm gonna agree (laughs) in the fact that they should happen outside of the classroom. But one of the reasons that that probably was fruitful was because of all the PhDs involved. And it's not just about the distinction, right? I'm not just talking about the doctorate. I'm talking about somebody who's dedicating their entire life, like Jeff said, to investigating these things, to reading all of this. It just, there is something about the expert. It doesn't need to be just the specialist in American literature that can read American literature, but someone who dedicates their lives to reading and thinking about these questions all the time brings a different perspective that is just much thicker than the person who's engaging with the text for the very first time. And I think we need that kind of um, thick-souled models. I mean, that's what Alan Jacobs was talking about, right? This thick soul idea those models need to be engaging. So how can we make sure that you have that kind of thick soul models (laughs) with these newcomers to the traditions that you don't lose out? Um, The other part was Jeff was mentioning how the university is that time for leisure. It's also a time in which you're in kind of a Aristotelian body politic where you're practicing the things you're talking about and that doesn't happen outside of the college campus as well. Right, it's a lot harder to find a body politic that is engaged in studiousness for a certain amount of time, and then they're sh- they're trying to chase wisdom together and practice these things together, and that's harder to find. Um, so I do I want I want liberal arts to thrive. Uh, one of the ways because I've seen it fall and kind of decline. One of the ways that I've been hoping to bring it back is the classical education movement to go and have the kind of education that Frederick Douglass did all on his own, that Dorothy Sayers had you know, growing up at Oxford, um, that you go back to kindergarten through 12th grade and maybe we'll prepare the kind of students that we want in our classroom. My only concern is that I'm preparing them for nowhere. That's my only concern is that by the time these kindergartners in 12 years, where are they going to go? Because it's the current problem that I have with my brightest honor students. I don't know where to send them to graduate school where they can still really invest in the liberal arts and have the kind of education that I felt like I had uh, in my PhD. So I, I think there's some hope and there are ways outside of the classroom, but I'm also really nervous about the future. And I think that's one of the reasons we're starting this project is that we can kind of increase the hope and, and <laughs> not downplay the nervousness, but maybe overcome it or assuage it somewhat.
1: Sure. Yeah, this has been a really rich conversation in that way, uh, even identifying some of the tensions or challenges that we need to foreground, um, but also identifying some of the beginnings and sources of hope. So what a friend of mine likes to call green shoots that we can see coming up And I'd like to close with a question for each of you um, that that points us forward to our next steps in this project or to the next six months, let's say, of conversations and interviews. And that is what what's one question that you think is going to be important for us to ask in these next six months, something about the present and future of liberal arts. It's on your mind and you want to make sure we ask our participants or what's one thing you know is on the horizon? Something we've already scheduled, some conversation you've already, you've already recorded that isn't posted yet, that you know is going to be important to our ongoing work and something that our listeners should pay attention to.
3: I'll, I'll jump in with questions that I have upcoming or some uh, interviews that are upcoming that I think are worth looking into. So, the question for me is how do you get people who are not interested in these questions to pay attention to these questions? <laughs> and so, I think Karen uh, Swallow Pryor is going to be interviewing Sven Bergertz who wrote the Gutenberg elegies, talking about how do you engage a technological society in the practices of reading again? And I, I think that's looking at audience in, an, in a way that we, we really need to consider is our audience is already closed off to us. So how do we open it up and how do we invite them into this conversation? Another a couple of conversations have to do with the church and with arts. So I'm gonna be talking to um, Makoto Fujimara about the arts role in the liberal arts. And then also talking to Andy Crouch about the church in the liberal arts and how liberal arts are a resource towards forming lives of faith and what that looks like. And so I think those are, those are three different arenas um, that I'm hoping to dive into and, and engage these questions with new audiences uh, going forward.
2: I'll just add, I got a,
0: go right. ahead. Uh, those sound like amazing, like all three of those interviews Jessica are just gonna be incredible. So um, good work on, on pulling those together. Um, there's, there are a couple of conversations I know that are coming up uh, with college presidents, um, which I'm very keen to listen into for, for a couple of reasons. But I think one I'll just mention now is um, something that's kind of come to the forefront of my mind in conversation with some of you offline has been the, the sort of tenuous nature of institutions that have a church related mission or vision. Um, so institutions like Valparaiso, which is historically Lutheran, have strong connections to specific denominations. And there's been a sort of channel from certain churches, sending their students to places like Valparaiso, and I think you'd probably say the same of a place like Wheaton or JBU. Um, but it seems to me that a lot of parents and, and to some extent students are increasingly less concerned so much about, say, the, the church relatedness of an institution or its denominational or theological history or commitments, and, and much more concerned existentially about Am I getting the biggest bang for my buck? Am I going to be able to get a job after spending all this money for years at a residential college? So I, I'm really interested to see, especially how some folks in in senior administration are thinking about the sort of church relatedness, the mission and vision stance of a university as more pragmatic concerns seem to be taking over the constituency. Um, even those who come from more conservative backgrounds. It's, it's a trend that I, I, I guess I knew was happening, but it's, it struck me with, um, a lot more urgency over the past just like six to nine months
2: yeah I'm excited about all of those uh, conversations and and others um, I'll just I'll just go back to what I said earlier about magazines I'm looking forward this January to an event where we're getting ready to announce and, and host I guess maybe by the time this conversation is published uh, there'll be information on our website about it but we're gonna uh, talk to three editors of small journals about the work they do and how those journals might be sites of formation and liberal arts inquiry. So um, I'm excited about that and, and thinking about sort of other, This just gets back to your previous question though, but other avenues of ongoing kind of lifelong learning outside of just the, the four-year liberal arts college.
1: Well, that's uh, a wrap I think for today's conversation. And I wanna thank all three of you for being part of it. I learned a lot just by getting to ask the questions and hear what you observed in these past couple months of uh, video interviews and conversations. I look forward to working with the three of you on this and our other collaborators in these next couple months and to see what comes of it.